0: Hello and welcome to this Misbehaviour Q&A. I'm Maria Kanderbye. We'd like to welcome Director Philippa Lowthorpe. Um, we will be taking questions all the way throughout so please use the Q&A function and I'll take your questions throughout. We'll be live for about 45 minutes. Um, Philippa is a three-time BAFTA winner Um, and misbehaviour was in cinemas just unfortunately for a few days before lockdown but is now widely available on many VOD platforms. Um, I'm sure most of you have had a chance to watch it but if not we'll be framing the Q&A in a way not to give away any major spoilers. Um, Welcome
1: Philippa. Oh lovely to see you, thank you for asking me to do this Q&A from my spare room at the top of my house. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Yeah,
0: fine. Um, congratulations on such a important film at this time. Um, just to set the scene for some people that may not have watched it, it's set um, in London in the ni- nineteen seventy at the time of when the Miss World pageant was coming to London. Also at the time, kind of when the women's liberation movement was kind of taking stride. Um based on a true story as well. Um, So the story was brought to you by the producer, Suzanne Mackey and the screenwriter, Rebecca Frayne. I just wanted to know how they came across a story that I think a lot of people hadn't heard of before.
1: Well, this this story um, first came to light on the reunion programme on on Radio 4. And Suzanne was in her kitchen listening to the programme. And at the same time in another bit of London Rebecca Frame was listening to the same programme and they both had a eureka moment and thought this would make an amazing film. Um, Suzanne immediately as all good producers do and she is a fabulous producer um, got uh, trying to find the people and, and trying to get hold of Jennifer Hoston, who was on that programme with um, Sally Alexander and Joe Robinson and she got hold of Jennifer before anybody else managed to get hold of her and asked her if she would be interested in being part of our our film. And so she and Rebecca set off on the long journey of development and anybody who's made a film knows that films often take a long time to get off the ground. So way, way, way before I was invited to be part of teen misbehaviour, Rebecca and Suzanne worked on developing the script and they um, met Sally, met Joe, and then years later, I was invited to come on board as well. But they did a lot of work and a lot of the heavy lifting, as it were, that you have to do before I was ever involved.
0: Um, And if you've just mentioned some of the real life characters there, so Jennifer Hostin was um, Miss Grenada, um is competing in the Miss World pageant in 1917. It was the first time that Grenada had um, been part of the competition. Um, played by Gugu and butter um, So other other members of the cast include Kira Knightley, Risa Fans, Keeley Hawes. It is the most incredible ensemble cast that you could pull together of talent. Um, if we first of all go through that kind of really impressive casting process and how you work kind of obviously basing all of these characters based on real life characters how you kind of got everyone involved and engaged
1: well yes yeah, so although all the characters you mentioned are real life characters so um, we worked with the brilliant nina gold and she is a, a wonderful wonderful casting director um, she is it has a fantastic eye. So working with her was an absolute treat on this. Um, And we, first of all, Kira Knightley was our, our, really our main character through Sally and Gugu. So both of those actors were approached virtually at the same time. And luckily for us, they both said yes immediately. So, wow, that was so exciting. And because of the subject matter, I think it just attracted people wanted to be in it. And Jessie Buckley was our first idea for playing Jay Robinson. And she said yes to, and, and, we, it, it, and Keely came on board to play Julia. So it was like a kind of lovely snowball gathering all these amazing people. And then the other thing that I really think is very important with casting is choosing all of the characters, not just your wonderful stars, but all of the characters who support are also very very important to find and um a wonderful young actress called Larise Harrison who'd really never done anything before played Pearl Jansen in our film and she was of she's just a, a wonderful find and 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 she fitted in beautifully to this amazing cast that we had
0: um so playing Pearl Jansen she played um, Miss Africa, Africa South was...
1: Yes yeah, sorry yeah Miss Africa That's okay
0: so obviously kind of the film is multi-layered and kind of in geopolitics and racial politics and social politics and that's I think what's so compelling about it kind of is multi multi multi-narratives but also from the point of view kind of multi-dimensional when it comes to Mm -hmm. women's stories um if we talk about that to begin with in terms of kind of all the the characters obviously all the leads are these phenomenal women um all from very, very different backgrounds and all fighting, in effect, very different causes. We have um, the Women's Liberation Movement. So you have Kira Knightley and Jessie Buckley's character who are very involved in that, fighting kind of more for social rights, social rights within the UK. And then you have the contestants from the Miss World pageant who, you know, each of them obviously from very different backgrounds, very different countries, but the two, um, the Miss Africa South character and Miss Grenada, obviously, you know, fighting for racial rights and kind of also fighting for a different world to where they're from. A very long-winded way of asking kind of, you know, how you balance kind of all of these stories just, you know, to show that, you know, there's a fairness kind of to every representation taking place.
1: It was really, really important for us all working on misbehavior that we didn't just take one point of view. This this um, story was an absolute gift for a filmmaker, because not only was it about fighting for women's rights, and this was the very first direct, direct action of women's liberation formed that year. The same year we had the first black woman to win Miss World and another woman of color came second. So the very facts of the story was an amazing gift to us to explore some racial politics, feminist politics, and, you know, it was, it was the heart of the anti-apartheid movement that year they were protesting too. So that Miss World 1970 was like a lightning conductor for protest. So it was a, a real gift for us as filmmakers and storytellers. And that's what I loved about um, Rebecca's script when I first read it was the fact that she really did look at all of the questions from different points of view. And it wasn't just one a lot of of white feminists, you know, their view. It was the view of the contestants, some of whom came from very poor backgrounds and being in a beauty contest was what they could do to get out of their background. Or like for Jennifer, who who actually came from a very middle-class background. Her dad was a lawyer and her mum was a teacher. I loved that because she wasn't from a very poor background. She was a really middle class, educated young woman, yet she had to enter a beauty contest to put herself on the map. Um, so it was, it was just so interesting. And also um, Miss Africa South, played by Louise, who, who's Pearl. We um, went on a journey to actually find the real Pearl when we started our research, because to me it was so important to find what her real story was. So in the script, when it first came, her character wasn't quite as well developed in there. So we, we set off to find her and, and find her we did. And she was completely gobsmacked that we, in, in this little tiny country far away from South Africa, wanted to tell her story. Because when she went back after Miss World, she went back into obscurity and lived in, um, anti- in, in apartheid South Africa for 24 years afterwards. So she told us all that information that's in the film about how she was uh, talked to by government officials before she got on the plane and and how she had been intimidated by them and she wasn't allowed to talk to this person or that person. And that was like, again, like, wow. When you look at the archive of Miss World and you see that young girl at the age of 19 parading on that stage, smiling away to the camera, behind that smile is her life. From, from from South Africa, all that she'd suffered, uh, you know, and we don't see that, do we? So I, I absolutely loved telling the behind the scenes stories of those contestants, as well as the behind the scenes stories of our wonderful women's liberation women like Sally and Jo. Um, there, and just the very notion of kind
0: of, what I loved is the idea of um, having, they, justified it in the film, but the notion of what beauty is, and um, who defines what beauty is, kind of obviously as a woman of color, <laughs> as myself, um, kind of the idea uh, that Western dictates on kind of an art, on culture, on the notion of democracy, and even kind of all the way down to what beauty is, um, is so ingrained that it's just was so special kind of in that sense, kind of to have, you know, a representation of
1: of other being you know so prevalent that's so true and that is absolutely what we wanted to celebrate so it was uh, it was very important for me that I showed the beauty of Jennifer played by Gugu and I showed the beauty of Pearl that was so important for me and I it, it wasn't just about you you know, women's rights, which was also very important to me too, but showing that beauty, exactly what you say about looking at those ideals turned on their head. I thought, yeah, I I thought that was, again, a a real gift for me as a director to be able to do that.
0: I've quite a few questions come in already. So I'll go to those to begin with. Um, So this is from uh, Anna. sorry Anu and she's saying thank you so much for your time today. Please tell us about your choices of decision making for the visual design of this beautiful film. What were your references and
1: inspirations? Oh that's a very good question. Well a lot of my references were from photographers. I love street photography and we looked at an awful lot of street photographers from the 1960s and 70s and looked at the uh, the life that those photographers were capturing. Um, I particularly, I love a photographer called Vivian Mayer. She's an American photographer actually, but she, I did a little homage to her in the film. If anybody knows the f- photograph of Vivian Mayer where she's got the beautiful red dress with the girl with the fingers crossed behind her back. In, this, in the scene at the end where the girls are waiting to know if they've got onto the final seven, there's a shot of a girl's back just with her fingers crossed. It's my little homage to Vivian Mayer. Um, but that's we we used we used a lot of street photography. But also, what I do, I've just got it here. Here, look, this is my this is my um, Bible. Can you see that? Yes. This is this is the Bible. This is some of my photographs. What I do before I make any film, I do a a big book like this, full of photographs and references. There, and it's got it's got it's stuffed full of wonderful wonderful photographs including photographs from the Ruskin when we in the film at the beginning there's the Ruskin and in that scene you see Joe putting a banana skin on top of a statue and there's veilings of other statues that that came from our reference photographs of the real Ruskin event where women in that event had covered the, the male statues up so that they couldn't see them with scarves and banana skins so in this film it was a mixture of real proper archive research and also finding the life that you get in street photography to make the film feel real and not too stylized so that's how we did that.
0: Anna's also said she's gonna look up Vivian Mayer now there's also a great Vivian Mayer documentary
1: Roger Mayne Main is another brilliant street photographer and Shirley Baker those are my favorites. I suppose I will have
0: a question about that so before I go to another I just wanted to ask about kind of this you've answered it in part but establishing um 1970 um kind of it's done so well kind of it's done so subtly that it's not you know sometimes you have like a pastiche or a parody where it's in your face, and you kind of like, Yep, I know where I am, but it's so subtle and kind of in the ways that it's embedded in, um, especially I think through hair and makeup and costume. Um, and I just wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about how you work with your um, hair and makeup designer, first of all, in terms of special obviously, you've got such you know the archive and the wealth, but it, it's you know, without it kind of moving into parody, um, how it was designed, so it was kind of still relevant and real, but without kind of playing on what the notions of beauty were?
1: You're so, that's such a great question. I, I, you know, you could have made this film very, very stylized and very heightened because it's about beauty pageants. But I come from a, I love making things about real people and, and, and real stories. And so it was very important for me that, the, that all of the costumes and all of the hairstyles felt absolutely real. And Jill Sweeney, who I worked with on Three Girls and with and on other things, but she and I come from a very similar aesthetic where wanting to make it real. And Jill is a brilliant, brilliant makeup designer and hair designer. So she and I went for that. You know, those hairstyles are heightened anyway. Look, they've got you've still got the sort of end of the 60s, those bouffant hairdos, but they were they're, they're res- researched meticulously by her, but also um charlotte walter who's the costume designer again she we all had that same aesthetic of wanting to keep it very very real and and that the clothes are crumpled and a bit messy and and a bit little bit shabby around the edges and that the the beauty contestants shoes are a bit scuffed you know all those things it's not it's not perfect and that was very very important that it felt because it's a true story or based on a true story it was important for us it had that real life texture to it and it wasn't all shiny you know it was uh, it was and the same with um Christina Casali the production designer she also really loved that sort of slightly grungy kind of 70 thing um which isn't psychedelic 1970s which is much later so yeah that that texture and and that atmosphere you get from trying to be a little bit real, I think.
0: We have had a lot of questions <laughs> come in, so I'm gonna run through yeah. some of them. Um, so Simon Smith is asking, I loved how you kept multiple major storylines clear and concise. How do you decide what not to include? And he's saying such as the John Thor link.
1: The John Thor link? Mm. Oh yeah, John Thor link. Well, he wasn't, um, yes, he wasn't really relevant to our story. And he wasn't, you know, part of Sally's life, really, as much as in, in that scene. So that was not part of what we wanted to say. I mean, our film, our film was about those things and we already had enough in there. I think traditionally, you know, the rules of filmmaking is you get your hero and you follow, you stick to them like glue, don't you? And you tell their story. But this was a different challenge, making, a, making an ensemble film and trying to keep the point of view of each character really really strong and that's something that I'm very keen on and I will shout I shout about it all the time POV 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 if a point of view any sort of students who've taught to me or anybody I'm always going on about point of view and that is really really important even more important when you're doing an ensemble piece and you need to get into the head of Um, Miss Grenada and you equally need to get into the head of Sally Alexander or Joe Robinson and that's all about where you put the camera who you're following or are you in a close-up or are you just sticking back in a wide shot you know those things are very interesting and and critical when you do something with so many points of view in to think about when you're planning it
0: yeah no one's no one's competing in misbehavior for kind of you know when you're with every character you're with them and you're not and then when you move away it's kind of yeah it's done in such a beautiful way that um everyone has their viewpoint and their say just coming back on when you were talking about filming just now um did you change techniques for each character so subtly as an audience member it gives us a different indication of who they are and I,
1: I i think i think that it's true for for instance with the women's liberation women they lived in quite a chaotic way in their commune and there and I one of when I spoke to the real women they always talked about this great energy and that the fact that they thought they were revolutionaries and they were only young they were like 22 23 24 you know and they lived in this chaotic commune with everybody's rushed in together and I wanted to capture that that life and so we used a lot of handheld camera work we, we were always following um, Kira Knightley, wherever she was going, it had a, we wanted to have a lot of energy because that's what they felt like, and that's how they still speak about that time. With the contestants, they were a little bit more contained, a little bit more careful, and a little bit more looking after themselves. So that had a different feel to it. And they were always being arranged into tableau. And um, our lot of our scenes are from real life. There's a scene where all the contestants are up on the stage in a tableau, and then all the press run in to photograph them. That came from a tiny snatch of archive that um, Christina, the designer, and I found of these men literally herding in to all these girls stood up on the stage. And they were always being assembled like that. So to film that, we wanted to make it feel like that herd of men were charging there, like like a kind of, I don't know, like an army. (laughs) And then you film it in a different way. It's sort of more like a spectacle. But to feel, we always had that element of surprise from using handheld, that freshness, and that's what the DOP and I worked on a lot. That you could have spectacle, but also you could have the frisson of oh, what's going to happen by using handheld and and keeping it real. And as in the demonstration, when things start to unravel, say for Eric Morley, the handheld technique was excellent then because you can. You, you know, you think, oh my God, what's what's he going to do? The panic and all of that was really good to capture with that handheld camera work.
0: Okay, we have over 20 questions in. So Sorry <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's me hugging you. Um, we have Joelle Uwusu. She's like, thank you for your time, Philip. Misbehaviour is a beautiful film. Um, it was a shame that the film didn't get enough time in cinemas. Um, are there any plans to add the film to streaming services or perhaps another cinema launch? Well, it is right now on quite a few streaming ser- services. And um, I don't know if you can speak to another theatrical launch at this time when, you know, we're still also kind of a little exactly. bit in disarray, but
1: we we just feel so incredibly lucky that it is available for people to watch in their homes you know we, we are stuck in our homes and we're very very grateful you know you can you can download it from itunes and sky and amazon prime and all those platforms so you know this is a such a, that word unprecedented been so overused but it really is unprecedented and for the cinema industry and for the film industry so we're just lucky that we can actually have it watched and perhaps when things get back to normal, there may be some screenings, maybe in the autumn. BAFTA often do screenings, don't they? We? we hope we'll be able to come to your beautiful cinema and do a screening there, perhaps, later on in the year. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, Margie Savory. The women
0: we see on television today presenting programmes, talking about news experts in a range of disciplines, often present as contestants on a beauty contest full makeup, dye blonde hair and high heels. What do you think the feminist analysis of how women can present themselves separately from the male gaze has been, why, sorry, why do you think the feminist analysis of how women can present themselves separately from the male gaze has been lost?
1: Hmm. Well, I'm not sure it has been lost. If, I, if you talk to people of my daughter's age, they say they, they can dress how they like, uh, with with whatever neckline or whatever leg showing they like, for themselves. So I think that's very different from the generation in the 9 in 1970, which we show in the film, where it's it's very much a, a, of a um, probably a thing to please men, especially as we show in the film where where we have that scene where the girls have to turn around to the judges and show their behinds. Which, which I know a lot of people, a lot of young people, are so shocked at that that actually happened. Whereas today, I think women feel much more empowered to wear what they want, where, how they want. And I think that is, is a good thing, although I could not wear a plunging neckline and very high shorts. I just couldn't do that myself. Uh, We have John Haig who's asking within the
0: context of researching a screenplay based on real life events What advice can you offer on how a writer can best establish trust and credibility with key people involved with the event and story when first making contact with them?
1: I think that's a, a, a question that I have to think about in almost everything that I've ever done because I started off as a documentary maker and so how you approach somebody, how you get them to be in your film or lend you their story is really, really important. And I think it is about treating people with real respect and, and, and integrity um, and taking them on the journey with you and explaining what you want to do, explaining what you want to do. And then hopefully they'll like what you do. But it's still, I mean, like a misbehaviour, it isn't a documentary. It is a drama based on a true story. So you, you also have to take those real-life stories and massage them into a good shape for a drama. If You, you can't let your craft, um, be, leave your craft behind either. So you can't just verbatimly report a story and hope that it's going to make a good film. You have to choose the salient points that you want to make, and what, and you do have to choose what to leave in and what to leave out.
0: And, um, on those salient points, there's um, some very key, pivotal scenes within the film, and for not wanting, to, well, not wanting to give it away for people that might not have watched it, but and they had a real impact on me just as a viewer. Um, there was one scene in particular. Um, during the Miss World pageant, where um, all the women uh, have to are asked to turn around, so you see all of them in their swimwear, but obviously just from the back, and it I don't know, it was really shocking, and it was it was and it's a thing that we kind of ordinarily even today we see every day. We watch so much kind of reality TV, and we consume so many magazines of images of women in swimsuits and seeing them from every angle. But the way that you portrayed it in the film really kind of, you know, it was just, yeah, I can't think of a word besides shocking, it really was. And I just wanted to kind of talk about how you created such impact with an image that we see and we're so used to seeing every single day right now.
1: I think it's because we of the context within which those shots were placed. So you have the the 3,000 people that are in the the theatre watching them and then the row of judges. And it is like being lined up and judged. And that's what people do in magazines all the time on their own, isn't it? But when you've got it like that, it's like a parade of flesh, really. And what I wanted to do was put the female gaze on that shot, really. So we show that that scene. But then we also go around the other side of the contestants and show their faces and what they're feeling as they're being judged. And it really is being judged. And that is quite shocking. I think it's seeing those appraising eyes and thinking about those women being appraised just for their shape really is is awful, isn't it? It's like being like a lump of meat all of a sudden. And then seeing the, even, you know, Jennifer, who, Hostin, the real person, said that moment was quite horrible for her. Even though she'd bought into the beauty contest, Miss World, and she wanted to win, you know, that moment for her, she said, was really quite horrible and made her feel really yuck. Um, and I think Gugu captured that in her face when we're gliding along there. Yeah, and so, you
0: going, do feel quite like sick to your stomach. When you're watching it, um, we have a question about casting here. Um, hello, uh, I just—it's from Nadine de Carvalho. I just want to find out if casting a South African actress was considered for the roles of Miss Africa South and Miss South Africa, um, rather than perhaps having someone that speaks in a South African accent.
1: Well, we did—we auditioned a lot of people from um, who had who had come from South Africa or had connections with South Africa. Um, But Larisse was the best. In the end, Larisse had more qualities that we wanted for playing Pearl. She had such a gentleness and uh, a kind of delicacy. And her spirit felt like what I thought that Pearl was like. And having talked to the real Pearl... So it was it was really interesting. Yes, of course we did. We interviewed a lot of people from uh, South Africa, but she she outshone them in the end. So that was the decision to go for the best actress in that in that case.
0: Um, I did actually watch an interview with um, the real life Pearl and L- Larisa plays and you're completely right. There is a, there's a certain um, there's a similarity kind of just in their um, kind of personality yeah. and the glint in their eye even. It's
1: so weird. It's so weird that they have got that similarity. Um, yeah, it's uncanny. It's uncanny.
0: I have a couple of questions about Bob Hope, so I will read them both for first. So Claire Ingham... I love that you included the character of Bob Hope's wife and the belief she has one of the best lines in the film. Was she always part of the script? Was it just too good an opportunity to miss to see the effect on her too? And then the location of Bob Hope's house looked like Eltham Palace in Lewisham. Did you deliberately film there because Bob Hope was originally from Eltham before he moved to the USA? And that's from Amy Malone.
1: Well, first of all, the easy question, yes, it was Eltham Palace. Yes. No, that was just a fantastic location. So it wasn't anything to do with where he'd come from. It just, we weren't, we didn't have enough money to go to LA to film. So we had to find a location that was really snazzy near London. And that was, that was snazzy. It was fantastic. Um, and with with Dolores Hope, she was always in the script right from the very, very beginning when Rebecca's very, very first um, scripts that she wrote. Um, Delores Hope was absolutely part of that. And I think that one of the things that I love that we did in the film was to see so many different female points of view. We have Delores Hope and her marriage to Bob. And what what was it like to be the the long-suffering wife of Bob Hope, who had brought home Miss World from 10 years ago and set her up in a flat not far away from where they lived. I mean, that was outrageous, wasn't it? And to explore that through her was excellent. And also Julia Morley, another kind of woman in that era, who was really treated like an equal by Eric, weirdly. Um, You know, even though they were uh, doing a very old-fashioned thing, putting a beauty contest on or a a real sexist thing, he actually treated Julia as an equal. And that was a very fun thing to portray in our film because she's she's a great character Julia Morley and a very impressive woman in real life actually very impressive woman.
0: Yeah that's kind of the beauty of both those characters kind of, kind of the Keeley Haworth's character you just mentioned and Leslie Manville playing um, Bob Hope's wife. Um, again you would think that you'd want you know traditionally you might view them and have a certain level of kind of um, disdain but you don't when you watch, you know, they're so well rounded and you kind of buy into the world and kind of almost, you know, stick by what they're doing. And, you know, they legitimize it in their own way as mm. well. Okay, we have so also, many
1: Leslie Manville is such a fabulous actress and she, she, she nailed Dolores Hope. And so obviously Keely did as well. So, so
0: many questions. Um... Um, we have Alison Drennan. Um, so she's asking about the film and if it's there's um, if it's being streamed anywhere else other than the UK. I'm not sure if you know about that, but I'm sure we could find
1: out. It, it will be streamed later in the year outside the UK. At the moment, it's just UK and Ireland. Right.
0: Um, this is um, from Ruvie Hamid. Um, how did you make the crossover from documentary to drama directing? Um, as a documentary maker myself, I can see how it's a great background to come from. But was it easy?
1: Well, I think I'm biased because I think some of the best drama directors have started off in documentary. Like um, Paul pa- Pavel Pawlikowski or Penny Woolcock or you know, so many uh, amazing documentary makers go into drama. And I think that's because documentary makers make very good storytellers because you're there gathering the information and then you have to weave the story, don't you? So I think it's a brilliant background for drama. I really do. I um uh And how did I do that I just always wanted to do drama as well and I was so I just never thought that women I didn't think that I could be a drama director which is why I started off in documentaries I just thought that there weren't any drama there weren't any women drama directing and there really weren't so it was only when I started to see films by amazing directors like Jane Campion and I remember watching um, an angel at my table, which felt so real and was about a real thing that I thought, oh, maybe you could, you know, maybe you could go and be a woman director doing drama. And then runs. Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, I remember watching that and thinking, oh my God, that is what I want to do. That, that story, that real story, but done in a drama. And so then I thought, well, maybe I could do that. And then I was lucky that my documentaries got noticed and they were quite unusual and quite odd, probably. <laughs> and I was invited to be part of various schemes where, you can, where people wanted drama, wanted documentary makers to come and make things because documentary people didn't know the rules of drama and they thought that they could get something a bit more fresh and different. So I was very lucky. I made one thing for George Faber For screen two, and then David Thompson and Ruth Caleb invited me to make my first feature-length drama with them. So I was I was lucky.
0: In that vein, and talking about talking uh, about misbehavior, obviously based on true events, Um, and just there's a couple of conversations that happen in the film that I kind of wonder I'd love if they ever happened, but I just would like to know if they did. So there's one, I, people have seen it, a particular conversation that happens in the bathroom, kind of post the Miss World competition with Sally Alexander, who's played by Keira Knightley, and uh, Miss Grenada, who's played by Goo and Baton Raw. Um, did that conversation ever happen?
1: I'm afraid it didn't, sorry to disappoint you. But that's the thing about making a drama. When you're making a drama, even if it's based on a true story, you have to, lift it off the page and you have to invent to really um, nail your story that you wanted to tell. But every scene in the film comes from a grain of real life. The reason we thought of that scene was Sally um, uh, told us that she was carried out of the corridors by four policemen and she said that they were quite manhandling her. And some of the contestants came out into the corridor and were shouting, put her down, stop hurting her. Um, you know, she's not done anything wrong. And uh, and so we thought well, actually it's a really good idea to have her meet Miss Grenada when she becomes Miss World. And it's actually, I think it's one of the most important scenes in the film. And um, yeah, it's very, very beautiful scene, very beautifully written scene and, yeah, that, that's, that's the thing about when you are doing real life as drama, you have to take the essence of the truth and make a truthful film, um, but you can't be slavish to the truth either, otherwise you miss out on some key dram- dramatic moments.
0: Peter Darney is asking, did you meet opposition in the development stage of the film, um, being an ensemble and pressure to stick to certain points of view? Um, and if so, how did you navigate them?
1: Well, I was really lucky. I, I came in at a stage where Pathé, um, Cameron McCracken at Pathé and Jenny Borghast had decided to make the film, as long as we got the right casting. So I, I think Suzanne and Rebecca, they were the, they had done an awful lot of the heavy lifting by the time that I came on and had fought quite a lot of those battles. Um, before I, I was even there. And the, the fact that it was an ensemble was in the DNA of the project. So there was no question that it shouldn't be a DNA, uh, <laughs> DNA, it shouldn't be an ensemble piece by then. That was that was important. That had been kind of thrashed out over, over all the years of development that they'd been doing. But really, really hats off to Rebecca and Suzanne, because I think that is a blooming hard thing to pull off because it's not the orthodox way of making a film the orthodox way of making a film is, as we said before, have, you know, you have very few characters, have a hero and stick to them. Um, And this wasn't like that.
0: Alison Drennan is asking, um, what has the feedback been from former Miss World contestants, those featured in the film and those who are not as well, and the organization as a whole, how much do you take these opinions into consideration when filming a movie like this?
1: Well, we, Jennifer hostin Hughes, Miss Grenada, um, absolutely loves the film and was a huge supporter and gave us a lot of material. Um, when I started, we had our co-writers also started, Gabby Chappie and she and I worked together, um, bringing more research, more information into the script. And Jennifer was a key part of that. And then um, the uh, other people, yeah, the same, the same thing. I don't think I answered the end of that question. Remind me what it was again? Scroll down. Ah, <laughs> okay. I don't think I answered the end. I oh. got sidetracked on Jennifer. Oh, the, the, the beauty contest. The be- be- yeah, Miss yeah, World in general. The miss- so so the, the two people who were part of our film, both Pearl and Jennifer, yes. They've seen, they obviously have seen the film and were part of the research process. We couldn't find the other lady. We, we tried to find Miss Sweden and, and Miss UK and all those people. We couldn't find them. Um, and we, um, gen, um, uh, Julia Morley saw the film after we'd finished it and really enjoyed it. She said there were lots of inaccuracies in it, and, <laughs> but she really enjoyed it. And she could she could see the spirit of it was meant in a very you know warm hearted way to them.
0: Did the uh, original kind of um, people that the film is based on did they have a chance to come together at any point?
1: Yes, many times. Um, we we they, the um, women who lived in the commune, Joe and and, Sal, and Sarah and, and and all of those people came to the filming. We spent ages sitting with them before we ever went filming, getting so much information from them about what, their, what the commune looked like, you know, how we could embrace everything that they told us, even like what music they listened to. And also Sally Alexander um, was fantastically generous with her time and she met Kira Knightley. And they had a a very long conversation about what it was like. Same with Jessie Buckley, Met Joe. There was a lot of very, very good collaboration for us from the real women. And then we've, obviously they've seen the film quite a few times since then. And we all came together for our wonderful premiere, which feels like a dream now. It feels like it never happened, but we all came together for the premiere and um, Pearl, and Jennifer met for the first time in 50 years at that premiere.
0: Oh, wow. It was That's very so
1: moving, it was very moving, very moving. And also the Libbers all, uh, met them for the first time in 50 years. It was incredible. We all stood on the stage at the front of the auditorium and stood together. And the, all, the, all the women, the c- contestants and the, and the uh, women liber- liberation women were all applauded by the audience it was such a lovely evening before the pandemics really struck <laughs> so i'm glad we were able to do that
0: um i won't give anything away for people that haven't seen it but it is just so impressive that what all of those women individually have all done with their lives as well And kind of 50 years on yeah it's quite a feat of what they've all achieved um Uh, we have Christina Aboa and Green. thank you for your insights. What themes interest you most and do you seek out when choosing what to work
1: on? I think I love um, human stories and I love stories about women, actually. I think I've made a lot of things about women, I've, it turns out. And I haven't really gone off to look for them, but I think those are the things that I'm interested in. Um, and I think there's something important that I want to say. It was really nice that you introduced this film as an important film, because so often, um, sort of things that are of interest to women are, are often considered sort of women's issues or sort of soft subjects. And, and I think women's stories get culturally demoted to sort of second class stories. Um, and and that, that they're sort of tantamount to being lightweight and, and of secondary importance. And I think they're not. I think they are important. And even though we tell misbehaviour with humour and a light touch and it's funny and we can have so much joy watching it, it's got some really, I'm I'm really glad that you've picked up on the important messages that are buried in there as well. Um, When I first started off Call the Midwife, I was lucky to be asked to be the very first director of Call the Midwife with with Pippa Harris, who's of course, um, a very famous person in BAFTA now. Um, And we we made this piece and then we were absolutely devastated when we had our first set of reviews because it really did bring out the worst in some people, male reviewers particularly, that they thought that this was a little light subject, probably because of the title. But to me, it was like putting women's issues right in the centre of the BBC One schedule at eight o'clock on a Sunday night it was like a feminist act. myself, I I felt like I was storming the stage of the schedule doing that, and um, we were devastated by some of the comments because they they sort of like wrote it off as nothing, as like, and I thinking I felt like that was like writing off women's lives, and then we got our own back because it was the highest rated television drama in the last 10 years and I thought sock it to you mate I, st- I, I won't mention the name of the male reviewer who I'd like to sort of take to one side <laughs> at one point but I think that's what I like about misbehavior as well it is an important thing to celebrate those women from women's liberation who fought for my rights to go to university and to be a director that they weren't able to do. A lot of those women who were in the commune um, and people like Sally, not Sally, but a lot of those women had had to leave their families because their families didn't want them to have a career or get education. And they were very much disapproved of. They lost touch with their families and they made their new family in that commune. And I think it's very easy to forget the sacrifices that women like that in the late 60s, early 70s, did for us and what they campaigned for for us um for later generations and that was very important to me making this film as well campaigning uh, them no
0: it's so important the kind of very idea that someone dismisses call the midwife is just to do a woman when the whole notion is you're bringing life into the world <laughs> but all life exactly including Chris. um we have a question that mentions call the word midwife as well um it's victoria aiken um she said she had the great fortune of being seen by you for call the midwife, and said you have a phenomenal talent for telling women's stories. Is there a particular woman that has inspired you in your journey so far,
1: or a story of a woman that you want to tell in the future? Oh my goodness, that's very hard. That's a really hard one. I am I I am constantly being inspired by women, actually. Um, whether it's just somebody who is like. A wonderful you know mom in the playground with with other kids who's just a brilliant mum, or somebody who's you know the amazing woman who's become the first shadow chancellor of the exchequer who was at the same college as me at university you know there are so many women to celebrate um and that's what we should carry what i would love to carry on doing um making sure that women's stories get told that women who often don't get a chance to tell their story that they that they get told it's important to be their advocate and tell them
0: i think that's why i said obviously the importance of misbehavior because even though i'm almost for 50 years or exactly 50 years on the world has changed a little bit so much of it still hasn't and kind of so much of what's covered in the film is astonishing that, you know, is still very prevalent um, today. Um, ooh, so many questions. So Leona Bourne is asking, how do you choose the soundtrack for the film? Um, are there any particular of your favorites in there?
1: Well, our soundtrack mostly for the film is, is composed by our wonderful composer Dickon Dick Hinchliffe who worked very hard to create the sound of 1970 for us. And uh, I, we really enjoyed working with him. My wonderful editor, Una Niganila, who I've worked with on many projects, um, she and I spent a long time working with Dickon, um, sending him our scenes and then he would give us tracks back that we would try. So yeah, so that that, it was a lovely, lovely experience. And then we've got a couple of found tracks in the film. I won't give them away if you haven't seen them, but mostly it's, it's, it's composed music for the film.
0: Letitia um, so thank you for being here. Um, can you tell me a bit about your way of directing actors? She said she was on the set of Misbehaviour for two days and she said she loved your gentleness.
1: Oh, that's nice. Um, well, I actually love actors. I think they are artists in their own right. And they're not just people who you can just who just turn up and, you know, they are actually really clever people. And the, the one of the most wonderful things is being in the front row seat as a director and watching what actors do. So if you have an amazing actor, you just have to help them be the best of themselves and be a sounding board and gently guide if you need to and just stand back and film if you don't need to. And then with other actors who are very new, they need much more help usually. And then just making sure you have like an umbilical cord between you and them so that you are experiencing everything that they're doing in front of you and that you are the barometer of emotion, what they're giving you. And that's the job of a director is you're, you're there, you have to like unzip yourself and feel everything. And if you're not feeling it, then you can help the actor give you more. And if, if uh, usually they are, but that's, that's your job, I think, to be, to bear witness to that performance and then nudge here and there if it's not quite right. But mostly it is, with this cast I had, it was just like quite easy, really, they were so fab. <laughs> Uh, We have Valeria
0: Epifani, she said hello.
1: Um,
0: So with the UK release, we've seen a few deleted scenes that didn't make it into the film. I wonder how she knows that. Um, The scenes we saw really gave more insight into Julia and Eric Morley's relationship. um, And also an insight into Mrs Hope. Um, How do you decide as a whole which scenes end up making
1: the cut? Oh gosh, that's so hard. Those conversations um, with uh, my fabulous editor, Una, and I debate and debate those those questions. And often when we present our cut to our executive producers, they also have a view. And sometimes they've got a really good fresh eye, which maybe Una and I haven't got a fresh eye because we've been at the cold face editing away. Um, and there's one particular scene that I know Una and I absolutely loved with, um, Leslie Manville. Um, it's an absolutely stunning scene, and we both adore this scene. And I'm very glad that people can watch it. And it was a, it was like having an arm chopped off, not having it in the film. <laughs> um, but it it came at a place in the film where the film needed to speed up, and the, and the pro, and the propulsion of the film needed to gather momentum, and our fresh eyes felt that we should not have that scene in. And it, indeed when just extracting it, it helps the film move more about the flow. But I don't know, I love that scene, <laughs> it's hard, it's hard.
0: We have Napper. he said, I was so lucky to have been able to work on this film in the crowd makeup room. It was the most rewarding film I've been a part of. Aww. Everyone works so hard on set. He doesn't have a question, but oh, just wanted just want to thank you. So pleased to have seen so many of the artists um, being supported. Um, thank you, that's lovely, thank you. <laughs> so lovely. Aidan McCarthy says he loves your work, Philippa. Can't wait to see what you're doing next. And can you perhaps tell us a little bit about what you're working on now?
1: I'm doing a very intriguing thing and it's my, one of my first attempts at non-real. Uh, non-real it's actual fiction this is amazing it's it's written by a brilliant writer called dennis kelly and it's called the third day and mine it's it's two trilogies and my trilogy has the wonderful naomi harris as its lead and it's fab and it's really intriguing it'll be out in september of or, or september october i think
0: I think we've got time for a couple more questions. I'm so sorry, there are so many. So if I haven't got to your questions, I apologise. Um, Audrey Lemignon has said, I love the film, the story and your style. Could you please tell us a little bit about your career? Um, how did you get started? How did you come to directing films? And do you prefer to storyboard um, floor plans? So that's four questions. So um, maybe just <laughs> Just maybe that like how you uh, how you got started and maybe then a little bit about storyboarding would be great
1: i well again i I started off as a researcher um, in documentaries and managed to persuade um, some people that I should make a documentary so I got started in documentaries really um, and storyboarding is is can be very useful and i'm a, i can I, I'm a great fan of it if you have got a complicated stunt scene or whatever to uh deal with. So I sometimes use storyboards. And then other times storyboards can make you too safe and, and you it's very hard to storyboard a handheld sequence. So I, I wouldn't that I do it like a shopping list of shots. I have a notebook and I write every single thing down that I need to shoot that day. <clears throat> and I tick it off. Like, like just, just going shopping to the supermarket. Just write down your shots.
0: We have Patricia Tyndale. Then given the film is based on real um, events and real characters, um, clearly casting actors are required to find actors to truthfully represent them. Um, Therefore, the casting process is crucial. Um, So she said she wanted to talk about how you worked with Nina Gold and what it is that you look for when choosing a casting director
1: well nina gold has just got the most immaculate taste so i think what you do is you you look at what people have done and do you like the casting that they've done you know, i also work with a wonderful casting director called shaheen baig um who's just on the third day and who i love i've done she did three girls and i love shaheen's taste it's wonderful and i love nina's taste so you look you look are they choosing people you like um and then you you Chat to discuss, you know, you you you. It's a collaboration, um, but it's great when you're casting to have somebody as a sounding board and also to bring you brilliant ideas that you didn't know about. Because casting directors are going to the theatre, they're watching everything. They have, you know, new people coming into their world the whole time. They they know a hell of a lot. Um, so it, it's essential to have a good one, like we did. <laughs> last
0: question, um, Anu would like to know about how, what you think about pacing within scenes and in the overall film. I suppose that's such a wide ranging question, um, but um, perhaps to kind of pare it down in terms of um, maybe talking about the kind of Rebecca's script and, you know, and then kind of working with that and to kind of create your own rhythm and pace for kind of when you're directing perhaps.
1: I think as a director, you you have to lift your film off of the script. You can't be stuck to it. You you have to interpret a script. So that's not just the script for this, um, Rebecca and, and Gabby's script for Misbehaviour. It's for any script. You, you need to kind of, you have to bl- breathe the air into it. I don't know how to explain it, but you, have, you, you can't just be wedded to what's written on the page. You, you, you need to, I don't know, imagine it in real life and f- look, look for things that maybe the script writer didn't imagine to start with too. I can't think of an example. If I, if I do, I'll give away the end of the film, but, um, but in, in any case, this, 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 the script is there. The, the second stage of writing is when you film it. And then the, th- the third stage of writing is in the cutting room. When you hone and, and you massage the thing that you've filmed into a new shape. So each of those stages is really, really important to the end result. It's a very interesting process. You know, we, today even with, um, I've got my remote Evercast film, uh, editing system. And I was getting Dennis Kelly to come into our cutting room, our virtual cutting room, and look at bits of film and give us a bit of ADR. And it's it's a lovely collaboration. Um, I, I I love working with writers as well as actors. I think that's an amazingly collaborative um, part of making films. So waffle I've waffled to the end.
0: <laughs> oh, she said thank you, um, Philippa. Thank you so much. Um, it's sometimes kind of unfortunate even now a little bit rare to see really well-rounded stories that feature women and even when they do perhaps it's just you know one or two but we have such um, a great film here where we kind of have many many well-rounded but very individual women so i really hope if you haven't seen the film that you will get a chance to see it and Philippa, thank you so much for joining us for this back to q and a thank you very
1: much what a pleasure thank you Thanks for joining us and remember, you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.